You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim. I'm Avram Kipolevich. Dr. Juni, last week, I think it was, that uh, headlines across, at least in, in the American press, maybe I think in European press as well, um, mentioned that uh, the most one of the most beloved uh, children's authors of the 20th century, whose books <clears throat> have been read universally and translated in so many languages, that six of those books, and I'm talking about Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, six of his books will no longer be published. In fact, the announcement came from the foundation or whatever it was that represents Dr. Seuss now. I mean, his, his widow has died, and whoever represents Seuss Publishing uh, has said that these books um, are have been hurtful. They are they hurt people, and they, they were wrong at the time, and they are now going to be taken out of circulation. Uh, some of these books, I know you did not read them when you were a child, but I um, devoured them uh, when I was uh, very very small. And uh, it was interesting when I looked at that list of books that are no longer going to be published. Uh, one of them in particular struck me was On Beyond Zebra, where uh, Dr. Seuss imagined, and he wrote this in 1955, that you know, instead of having ABC books, which every single child publisher was publishing, there's letters beyond Z. There's new types of letters. In fact, the English alphabet, which is what every kid was expected to memorize, might not be it. There's, there's way beyond zebra. And there's letters that stand for fantastic animals and, and are part of cultures and, and universes that don't necessarily uh, relate, or they relate, but they're not necessarily what the child was seeing in front of them. And I remember when I read that book, it was just, I would just spend, who knows, countless hours just checking out these strange letters and the strange creatures that were connected that these letters stood for. Um, I think when I was doing some research before we started recording, what was wrong with that book was the fact that there was a character, uh, there was a letter called Spaz, and uh, it, it stood for some sort of animal that was that was uh, tethered and trained by someone called Nazim. Nazim was writing a spazim or something like that. And I understand that uh, that was a slight to uh, the Arab culture, that it almost uh, sort of um, identified the typical Arab as someone in some sort of rag on his head in some desert riding an animal. And that was considered insensitive, at least it's considered insensitive today, and promoting negative stereotypes about people from Arab cultures. Anyway, that's just one example. And the other books as well had images of Africans, pygmies, uh, images of, of Latins and others that were drawn in a way that uh, corresponded to stereotype, stereotypes that it's been determined uh, create a negative influence on children. So this is just for people who weren't aware of it. This is just, just broadcasting the news. But it sort of hit me, uh, Dr. J, that, you know, they, they're coming for Seuss now. 
Um, you know, to me, as I, I said before, there's such an incredible benefit, at least for, uh, for me there was, to recognize that the English alphabet was not all there was and that the world in front of me was really something that was only the beginning of something much grander and greater that perhaps existed in my imagination, but might be actually out there somewhere. And this book and all of his books, really, if you think about it, were pushing the boundary. I remember, you know, when I when I read the blurb on my edition of Green Eggs and Ham that I have here, uh, they say that Seuss, uh, with his volume of absurdity, has worked like a karate chop on the weary little world of Dick, Jane, and Spot, uh, which were the typical primers that kids were supposed to read. Seuss actually, as we all know, was a pioneer in, 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 in developing children's imaginations, causing children to think outside of the box and, and to not, be, not feel guilty about their wilder instincts and to actually understand them and to create characters that were multifaceted. Uh, and they weren't just uh, normal uh, robots. They actually seemed to have a sense of humor. And the child could actually use, even though Seuss was no great artist, the child could actually feel a connection to the book because these incredible creatures were sort of creatures he could draw, he or she could draw themselves. So I guess what I wanted to talk to you about was, first of all, this phenomena of going back and, and, and you know, uh, excising these authors but also, and I think this is your area more than, than, than perhaps, uh, you know, literary criticism, is the benefit of Seuss and others in terms of what they do for the child, uh, the child's growth. What happens to the child when, 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 when books and stories even, oral stories are read to that child? How the child's mind uh, adopts and expands what that has to do with the child's development as a person. And when we start taking these elements out of, 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 of education and training and what, what sort of hurt that might uh, engender. In other words, if we're going to limit what we read to our children and we're going to be very uh, strict and we're going to say certain things, it, 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 are there certain things in your mind that should be taboo in terms of the type of uh, literature and ideas and stories that we expose our kids to. Anyway, that's your plate for today. Um, why don't you start responding? Very well. No problem. I can rise to the challenge. First, let me say, you, you gave me two plates here. You gave me a little appetizer, and then you got involved with the main issue. And um, I have an identity, basically, as a senior scientist, other than my specific sub-identity as psychoanalyst and diagnostician. So I have to respond first as a scientist. Um, you had mentioned that they're coming for Dr. Seuss. Um, they're really coming for us. They're not coming for Dr. Seuss alone. Dr. Seuss is uh, one of the, um, shall we say, icons, but basically they're coming for every single scientist and academician. And it, uh, it's really a nightmare for many of us that makes us feel that we're back in the heyday of the um, uh, re-education um, efforts in the um, 
Republic of China, the People's Republic of China, or say that we're back in the uh, gulags, being sent to the gulags uh, back in Russia, or even facing Stalin's, um, shall we say, academic firing squads. Um, Basically, uh, what's happening in academia now is that there's a tremendous amount of oversight for every academician, for every scientist to make sure that they don't stray. And the, the sanitized word is current administration policy of the United States government. And essentially, there's a lot going on. I have colleagues who are being forced at the threat of being fired. These are fairly advanced colleagues. They're my age. They're being forced to attend um, re-education courses because they feel they're not sensitized to things. And this is um, uh, pretty much out of control. I mean, the uh, to me, I'm sorry, this is an appetizer. This is not my main soapbox for today. But the, the idea of cancel culture is, is resulting in a deviation from facing reality. I am not saying justifying reality. I'm saying facing reality because what we're doing is being forced to face constructs or realities which are really caricatures of reality. And you say caricatures, I'm not thinking just in terms of um, 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 portraying car- caricatures like in Cat of the Hat, etc. I'm saying that they're taking situations and distorting them and saying, no, the truth is X and Y and Z. And instead of the narrative truth, which was all the rage in academia, say, 15 years ago, which is that different people perceive truth differently, we're back now to a fascist system where truth exists only in one way. And when I say truth, I'm saying history. We're going to take history and change it. Um, I... I, um, the idea, let's say, of photoshopping or coming up with various kinds of photographs and saying, this is my reality because I created it. That's what we're doing to the past. And we're pretending that Thomas Jefferson was one kind of person and this was another kind of person based on our likes. And when somebody is not amenable for his image to be doctored, we just knock down this whole statue and say, okay, uh, we will never once again mention this guy or that guy and soon it'll be that we're going to decide that Biden is really um, the president who came right after Clinton. Why not? We don't have to recognize the world. I mean, forget it. How about saying, you know, Hitler was a terrible person. Let's just erase those couple of years from all the books and everything will be fine. The thing, the specter I'm faced with is when I first saw in Josephus smuggled in a statement saying that, of course, Jesus right. is the son of okay. God. Right? And what happened you're, here, you're really going far afield now. <laughs> I'm stop in a moment. So what happened there, well, I don't know, Josephus may have been just like a sniveling, you know, double crosser. I don't know. No, uh, no. When, you, when, you read the, when you read the Driven Leaf about Rav Mayer, you get the picture. Okay, I don't know what Strindberg. happened. Strindberg, Strindberg. But I don't remember what happened to Alicia, but I was not around by Alicia, but I'm sorry for those references. Let me stop doing this. Yeah. So um, basically speaking... I just lament what's going on here with this cross-cultural stuff, which has brought to getting rid of Dr. Seuss. And to right, me, okay. I... well, you know, they're not just. Let's be honest. You're right. This might be the end of Dr. Seuss, the beginning of the end. Right now, they're just excising six of, of his voluminous of course, works. Of course, of course, I know exactly how it works. I've studied, you know, fascist systems quite a bit for the psychoanalytic value of it, I know exactly how that works. You know the story. First they come for that guy, 
and that's not me, then they go for that guy. They're coming for us. Okay. Yeah. Let me just also put, put out there for those Dr. Seuss fans like myself, he actually was an incredibly, um, uh, an incredible fighter. Unlike Jefferson, who you mentioned before, in his writings, and they're brilliant, but he is extremely prejudiced. He didn't like Jews or our religion too much. And obviously, his ver- what he thought, the capacity... Well, nobody, nobody liked Jews. Right. Or- uh, okay. So, but what I'm saying is, Jefferson, if you look at his writings, you do find things that are disturbing. And, and also, in terms, besides how he handled Sarah, uh, um, Sally Hemings, uh, his his views of slavery and other things. So I'm I'm not saying Jefferson the Jefferson Memorial uh, should be uh, should be detached and thrown into the Potomac pool. What I'm saying is is that with Seuss, you know, with, again Jefferson, all right, complex, but in terms overall, great in terms of his thinking, in terms of what he wanted from a, a society. In terms of Seuss, however, Seuss was actually a fighter for anti-prejudice. Uh, most of his, if you, again, I hate, you probably didn't read these books, but the books that I read and the books I read to my kids, like The Sneetches, where it talks about people with stars and, 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 the, and the other creature without stars, it was all about fighting prejudice. It was all about, uh, everybody knows, of course, the Lorax, which was his, he was out there fighting for, um, uh, for um, the, the environment. Um, Yertle the Turtle, which of course is really uh, a, a, a metaphor for, for despots and, and, and for all sorts of dictators, Hitler especially. Everyone saw Yertle the Turtle, the way everybody had to uh, seek Heil to him. So he actually, throughout his career, was a fighter very much in line with what woke culture embraces. The, the problem was, is that, that sometimes in his incredibly broad canvas, things slip through the screen. And that is why they are tearing it down, which again is, is incredible because you're talking about someone who was really uh, probably more in line and was a better articulator of the idea of inclusivity than almost any other writer, children's writer of his time. And uh, that's why it's so, it's so people do not, people are not nuanced. And I think what they're going to get the impression, just like they're going to say Jefferson was evil, it's, they're going to, they're going to get a total distorted sense of Seuss, of, of Theodore Geisel as one. And I think that, that to me is very tragic. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I got that. I just want, if, just to finish this, because I want to get onto the good stuff. Um, just to finish this, I'd like to serve for a minute, put on the prophet hat, okay? I want to be Yonah. I want to be Isaiah for a minute. And I want to wake up the woke culture. And what I want to tell them is that in a couple of years, they're going to get this as well. Because as society progresses and whatever kind of continuum it is, we have different values. And then we discover that we ourselves, we, I'm saying the world culture now, who are so sanctimonious, have missed point A or B, and we didn't notice that. So therefore, our statues are going to be thrown to the Potomac. And our books will be erased in favor of the new books that will now reign as reality for the next three and a half years after that. And then that will be torn down. So I don't mind saying we've changed our values and we consider this a bad idea. But when you start censoring history and burning books, it ain't going to turn out right. And we should have learned this because 
Every society that burned books did not do very well for its constituents or for any rights. And I think it's ridiculous to say that Martin Luther King was a behemoth and a bad person because he fought for black people, but he didn't mention anything about transvestites. Let's get rid of him, right? And then the people who are fighting for transvestites will get rid of them because they didn't realize that there is something else to work on that just wasn't up to their scientific zeitgeist. Okay, let's stop that because otherwise I'm... Okay, let's go to the main thing. Go ahead. You know, which I'm pretty good at. Okay, let's get to the topic on uh, what's going on over here. So you've touched on several aspects there. So just as an introduction, what I'd like to say is that the field of developmental psychology, which is a euphemism for child psychology, is a very new field, even within psychology, which is itself a pretty new field in terms of the, uh, the spectrum of, of history that's been behind us. Um, the notion of child psychology, the um, invention, the Hiddish of child psychology, which basically started dawning only in the, I would say, in the second third of the 1900s, is that there is something called a child and that that something is different than an adult. So if you look at paintings, let's say, Right through Rebenza, right through the end of the 1800s, if you look at children, you look at adults, if you don't see a perspective, the child looks like an adult. Same kind of dress, same kind of face, same kind of creases, just smaller and having smaller clothing or whatever. Um, the idea that a child is different, maybe even a different subspecies, not developmentally, but in terms of their functioning, I mean, almost like a, a, um, a tadpole, and a frog. Now, is there are different ideas over here that mean some different way of thinking, different values, different whatevers, is something new. So getting away from the apprentice days where somebody, let's say, who lost his job as a milk farmer and wanted to become an ironsmith would be in a group learning from the master smith, which would might consist of seven-year-olds and 45-year-olds. And they would get the same instructions, the same notions, the same rations, the same beatings, by the way, right? They'd be subject to the same kinds of discipline. So the idea is these guys are all the same, just you're smaller, maybe you're a little bit weaker. So you're equivalent to, let's say, an an adult who's 40 who happens to be weaker or happens to be perhaps a little bit more silly or doesn't doesn't have much experience in life. So that's changed dramatically when we came up with a different psychology for children as such. Now, Freud basically closed the circle and went backwards and said, yeah, but the truth is that all adults are really children and everything else is subterfuge. Okay, so we'll get to that. But the notion of children being different is a notion that's been spearheaded by brilliant children's authors and at the end now been like uh, sensationalized by people like, 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 um, um, I don't know who's the fair. Okay, let's talk about Dr. Seuss. Fine, that's been sensationalized that way. That essentially it hammers it in. You're not dealing with a regular 40-year-old guy who's just a little bit silly or somebody who hasn't quite gotten the message. A different way of thinking. And again, the people who are into creativity show that it's really a different part of the brain, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so let's start from there. So you have a book like Dr. Seuss, right? If I would read Dr. Seuss and not have a, have a couple of drinks and not realize it's intended for kids, I'd say, okay, this guy definitely needs a good dose of Thorazine and we'll give him a little gentleman to go along with it, maybe a little bit of shock treatment, and that'll bring him back to what reality. That's the first, re- first reaction I have. And yet, 
what Dax Basu says. Hey, Junie, this is how kids think. And of course, Freud says that's why adults think. But again, this is a different kind of understanding of who they are. So let's compare then the less progressive children's literature, i.e., I'm sorry, i.e., fairy tales, and something like Dr. Seuss. So fairy okay. tales. So, so we're definitely we're definitely putting off the map. You are definitely the the type of instruction books that children would read, where they would just have very um, bland, familiar characters in order to teach them the language. That we clearly. Or the, or- them what we call reality testing. Hey, buddy, there's several things going on over here. There are daddies, there are mommies, there are policemen, and there are tax collectors, and you better learn it fast. This is what we teach the apprentice in the Smith shop. Basically, okay. say, hey, there's a hot fire. Don't put your hands in it. You put that, you're finished. I okay, understand. Kind of- so, right. so- I'm talking those that are meant to be, shall we say, um, emotionally educational. Right. The, ones that, are, right. the ones that aren't supposed to, let me rephrase that. The regular children's primers that Seuss was fighting against were more instructive manuals to turn the child into a the adult that they were thinking about, right? In other words, this is what yes. you say. This is a man. This is a woman. This is what you're expected to do. You're expected to have a job. These are the, the things you should be, and this is what you should be familiar with. And, and since, like you say, you're a little person, I am giving it in terms that I think you'll be able to grasp. But we are yes. not necessarily zeroing in on your emotional or your imaginary uh, faculties and things that are swirling because within you. Exactly what we want to get rid of. That's not going to do you any good. Uh, when you're out there fighting a bear or something, we don't care about that stuff. You have to know how to handle the sword and how to handle the competitors, etc. Let me, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. So that's also, often let me just say, not just teaching them um, the kinds of things they should do, but teaching them roles. Yes. And also, more importantly, teaching them what's real and what's not real. And what's not real is supposed to be thrown out, garbage, and and devalued because you'll never get anything out of dreaming you'll be Superman. Leave me alone. So, and and that's why these primers... Which I actually was exposed to. I, you know, I don't know if you were. These not the, at all. In no, school, but they were. They were. They were realistic. In other words, the pay, they were Norman Rockwell type of drawings that were maybe they they didn't have the artistry of Rockwell, but there was none of the fabulous, uh, unreal elements and colors that you'll find in a typical Dr. Seuss book. So that we you agree. Uh, is an advantage. Now, what you are saying and, and, and what you're going to go on to is you're going to contrast the the oral giving over fairy tales to these books like that Seuss and other pioneers uh, and Maurice Sendak and others were trying to push for children, right? That's what you're going to. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's deal with that. Um, so the, the typical um, children's literature of fairy tales were essentially... Um, books, I would call it, of rapture. They were books of terror, terrorizing these children with all these horrible imageries and ideas of people who are out there, out of control, being vicious, almost like, shall we say, an implicit threat, almost a Freudian threat, that if you don't comply, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be at the mercy of these witches and these spells and these giants and who knows what else. Okay, so it was essentially, I would say, a pointed attack against um, loss of impulse control, 
against thinking that you can do what you want or what you think is right or think for yourself, it's not going to work. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. You have to have the, um, uh, beneficent, the, the, um, the blessings or the help of the king or the rich guy or whatever, the good witch, whatever, whatever the imagery is, which is uh, kind of interesting because what you're left with them for the child is essentially constantly looking under the bed seeing what monsters are there, etc. I can tell you that some children who are in their 60s or their 70s or my patients still look under the bed. Some look under the bed consciously. Some, if you just analyze their dream, it takes you about 40 seconds into the dream and they're looking under the bed for the monsters, which means they live with that. And essentially, from a psychoanalytic perspective, this is our way of socializing our kids. We socialize them through implicit terror. We don't say specifically, oh, you don't do this or the guy's going to get you. Although some Germanic people do actually threaten kids like that when they want to raise them. But implicitly, the notion is we have ogres, we have all these bad things happening. So you better stay in shape and make sure that you have the right desires and the right needs and the right fantasies. All right? Um, There is more to kids other than fears. There's a lot of creativity there's a lot of thinking out of the box, which if allowed to blossom as a feature, we end up raising people who are innovators in society, sometimes even for good, not just for making money, sometimes for horrible things, but sometimes for good. But that's the, the nature of the child is not to be bound by all these, shall we say, um, arbitrary or society-based constraints, which we put on them. Okay. So the question is, how much do we let them uh, blossom, how much do we control them? At what point do we say, okay, son, you're 45 years old now. It's time to take off the pampers. We're going to talk. Or do we say, no, we don't want to do that. So it's a, I understand it's a balance and I can make fun of my approach as well. But the idea is, by definition, the more we impose reality, the less we allow the true nature of someone who is more open to options to blossom. Now, there comes a certain point where we feel that without reality testing, you're finished. So come on, you got to get out of bed. You got to go to school. You know the joke, right? Because you're the principal, right? And class is waiting for you. But at some point you have to, okay. So that's the overall, shall we say, smorgasbord of what's going on over here. And I just need to add one point that not only when we teach kids, are we teaching them how to be emotional? We actually teach them logic. Because if you go from an autistic point of view, I can make anything into anything. So I don't have to reason. It's just my wishes. We have to teach at one point that wishes have to end because we have to confront reality testing. And yes, you have to breathe, you have to eat, you have to make a living, you have to whatever, move out of your mother's house, etc. Okay. So, (laughs) well, you know, what I'm going to uh, mention someone that uh, I have good cause to demonize, and so do you, uh, Bruno Bettelheim, who uh, wrote a book. I'm not sure, you know, considering what's come out about him, I'm not sure if the thesis was totally uh, uh, original, but he definitely, his name is on the book, and that is The Uses of Enchantment, which uh, many see as a classic in terms of describing uh, what fairy tales do and you're right they are hard they do have terror in them but 
there's also this idea, and I'm, I'm quoting here, um, it's, 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 they are instructive reflection of the child's natural and necessary killing off of successive phases of development and initiation. So when you do have a child who is confronted by the, the, the mean mother who wants to kill her, right, or like in Hansel and Gretel, the original story was actually the mother, not the stepmother. Um, there is this idea of wanting to displace your, your mom. The idea of the burgeoning maturity the child feels inside of themselves. And what does that mean? Uh, dealing with a lot of, I, I would say, again, I'm stepping into a minefield here, talking to the Freudian extraordinaire, but a number of these complexes that every child is burdened with and when the story, although the child filters it through the fantastic imagery, what it's speaking to is actually processes that are going on within the child. The child's sense of their changing from a little baby into someone that wields adult power. And maybe even the child's recognition of their sexuality in terms of what that means and, and in terms of what they're questioning and how there are taboos and other things around it. And the symbolism, just like you said about dream symbolism, the symbolism of a kiss putting you to sleep uh, or a kiss waking you up or, or blood being pricked in your finger, uh, those are all uh, aspects of, of messages that the child, children needed to grow uh, and to, to move beyond. Uh, remember, it's terrible, but the hero somehow survives, even though there has been a lot of carcasses piling up in these stories. But there is, you know, th there is some survival that occurs. Even Hansel and Gretel, they kill the darned witch, right? They throw her into the, into the oven and, and kill her. Uh, they end up alive. There is a struggle, but there's also a success that happens there. So um, I, I just wanted to put that out there for you. Um, uh, and I, again, I know that this isn't necessarily what you were working with, but I think it does align with your basic approach about what you want to bring children through. Children, humans, however you want to call it, these are states of being that are inherent and maybe focusing through these fairy tales were ways to work them out and work them out in a way that the child was more ready now to deal with what the adult world was going to bring. Let me react to a couple of issues here. First of all, I am not at all a follower of Bettelheim's theories, especially insofar as they depart from orthodox theories, but I have to say something in his merit. I've seen like uh, prominent theologians who sit in the academy all day and deal with theological issues, and to them, the real problem of humanity is dealing with one of St. Anselm's proof of God or whatever, because that's what they've been exposed to. Bruno Badelheim, to his credit, went through hell. Right? And I don't blame him for seeing the entire world of development as I mean, through the lens of these horrors that go on, that, that, that were perpetrated on him. So I don't blame him, and I understand him, even though I may be putting him down saying that because of the circumstances, he didn't really have a more um, a comprehensive view of what development is all about. So I need to put that in there. What I want to say, you're using the term working through, and that's a professionally reserved term in psychoanalysis, which means that you evoke the boogeyman, 
you face it and then figure out how to deal with that in a way that it settles you down as a person. The working through in the traditional Hansel and Gretel type books of raising children was recognize what it is and put a lid on it. Not work it through, say these fears, the fears of what we do these days with children who are frightened. The fears are not real. There really are no skeletons. Nobody's going to get you. And even when they do, you always have protective people. Rather than be terrorized and shut up, can it, and don't ever think like that again, because otherwise the guy's coming after you with a, with a 10-foot knife. So that's not called working through. That's called, I mean, from, again, from a presentist perspective, there's no question that 100 years from now they'll say these guys were idiots. They weren't working it through either. They were using it as a tool to control everybody to be very, you know, democratic and libertarian, whatever it is. But from our perspective, at least, working through means getting them to face these issues on their terms, seeing how beneficial they are, how they make sense to them, and looking for alternatives rather than squelching. Squelching was the educational method until, let's say, the late 1940s that we used towards children. You have emotions, you have fears, you have fantasies, put a lid on it. Otherwise, I'll get you. I I think what I was saying was that I think Bettelheim, whether he invented it or not, saw that in many of these fairy tales, it was not being squelched. When you talk about Snow White uh, waking up or uh, afterwards, yes, there was a terror of, of becoming a woman. There was a terror of maturity. There was a fear of what the type of uh, hold that you have on people. Uh, it's scary to grow up as a teenager and, and, and realize that now you, you're leaving your youth behind and now you exert a certain influence. And, and yet, at the end, you can, and I think the, the heroine survives. I don't, I don't have the original fairy tales that uh, in front of me. But I think in many of them, whether it's Jack or others, oh boy, that was harrowing. Like you say, a Holocaust-like, in fact, the, the amount of death that piled up in these uh, original Grimm's fairy tales or, or whatever was the, those collections. But I think there was a sense of survival and there was a sense of being able to now not be scared of the changes that you were sensing within yourself. And again, that's, I think, just to give Beto, I think that's what Bettelheim was trying to say. And what he was arguing against, let me just finish the point, the sanitizing of fairy tales that he saw, you know, through the lens of Walt Disney and others that took many of these classic stories uh, and, and, and wanted to clean them up, that they, they, they were bereft of, uh, of those type of things, that the, the child was ultimately super good uh, and, 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 and there was no gray areas. Uh, and I think that's what Benelheim was saying, that we need, to, we need to use fairy tales and stories like that to, to, and adults need to be able to expose their children to that and speak to them. And I know when we were talking about this yesterday, uh, Dr. Joan, when I called you up about this, I, I mentioned to you what, you what you would think about, like, what would you say, you, you have children under your care, uh, what would be the process of, of, of talking to them? I mean, you, 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 have a, you, you come home from work, you have, they've done their homework, whatever they were doing, you now have sleep time, bedtime, now it's a time to bond with your children. How do you rate, in terms of importance, story time and, and interacting with them and exposing them at, this, at these moments to, 
to stories, uh, whether they are uh, written stories or stories that you are uh, causing them to imagine in their mind. Uh, so I know I'm sort of I might be taking you away from what you want to want to talk about, but I think I think it aligns with our introduction about Seuss and others. Okay, so I can tell you that one of the bad things we do in stories, especially when they're meant to be emotionally educational, is raise the problem and then quickly try to solve it before halftime is up. Right, And that's a mistake. In other words, when you deal with emotional issues, we dwell on it some. Okay, so would you like to be in this situation? What's scary about this? Has something like this ever happened to you? Did something like this happen to you today? What sad things that happened today made you think of this? What happy things that happened to you made you think like this? And don't combine that with, okay, now let's think of how to fix that. Let's leave that for another night, maybe, or for another week, but if you, or maybe for another session. The idea of trying to package things and exploring issues for the sake of solving them does not do service to the exploration process because that sets the exploration process and the recognition of this is how I feel. Make It makes it only a preliminary to how we want you to feel or how you should be feeling. And that is an implicit message saying that this is all a havamina. This is all something that's not really sensible and we're going to get to the solution later. I liked very much, there's a, a brisker word saying, stick with understanding the question. Stay with there. It's fine if we don't know the answer because exploring the question is a value of itself. So I would say in terms of uh, reading um, bedtime stories or talking through some kind of bedtime imagine, imaginations, it's very important to let the child be the driver, say, what would you say should happen? Like you stop the story after two, two pages and say, what would you think should happen there? What would you think should not happen there? Why not? Would it bother you? Would it bother everybody else? That allows a fertile emotional imagination, which is just as important as the intellectual imagination of what happens if we had more letters or what happened if we have time went backwards or what happened if my navel turned into a face, that kind of stuff. It's all important because you can't deny because that is a given. I think developmentally, it's basically God's given to children as they develop. So they're giving them a way of using the richness of what they're born with before mother nature or mother society comes in and constrains them into being mannequins. So that's what I would do in these stories. So, so in other words, even though these authors like Seuss and others, you know, presented a palette that's magnificent and interesting, but with a narrative that goes to an end, you would like to stop in the middle and just like say, hey, in other words, use it as like we say in the teaching profession as a trigger. So in other words, instead of reading the book all the way through, to maybe just begin it as a way to get the kid to to start, the child to start, and then begin your own personal interaction with the child based sure. on who that child is. Now you know that there's, the child is going to say, "Finish the story." The child's yes. going to say, "The child's going to say, what's no? What happens? What happens? Right. Sure." But see, what's important about these authors, if they're insightful and they can put themselves into the mind of the child, is they almost offer a smorgasbord of choices that a normal child would latch onto. So they know, okay, some 
th- uh, kids are trying to get the message that things really don't end. Let's try that. Some kids are trying to get the message that things are really the opposite of what they are. Let's put that in there too. If you're a gifted children's author, you include all those options so the child's um, emotions can resonate with some of those and saying, aha, I didn't think of saying it, but this is what I really am excited about or fearful about or wonder about, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I mean, the ultimate is that they can then relate it to their relationships that they have with others or to their own self-perceptions. How do they see themselves? So you see someone who's very sure of himself, even if he's an ogre, and this is what the original authors intended, maybe the child can identify with that. You see someone who's a victim, say, yes, I can identify with that. And then ultimately we can try to teach the child that, yes, sometimes you can be this and sometimes you can be that. And sometimes you can do things that are wrong. And sometimes you can do things that are right. And sometimes you can question whether what you thought was right was really wrong. What you thought, yes, I would use it that way. Almost like a diagnostician uses a TAT. I'm sorry, a TAT is basically a bunch of just single frame pictures where we ask a diagnostic patient to come up with a scenario around there. And that gives us a very good idea of where his projective psychology is from. The same way with the child. But with the child, we have a chance to educate him or her and say, Educate them basically to options, not to what should be, just what the options are. Because you can be darn sure that if you think of it, think it's an option, they surely thought it was an option and they just decided to knock it out or not go with it. And maybe not for good reason. Well, you, you know, this brings up another, sometimes a challenge that parents have. And I don't know if you had it uh, with your children and grandchildren. But as the child r- learns the skills of reading on their own, the child many times will just take the book themselves. And you don't have that moment where you are sort of like as a parent or a protector uh, guiding this sort of uh, exploration. And the child... Let's, I want to include an option there. Censor. You're also a censor when you're there sometimes to guide them away from what you think they should not be entertaining. I, I agree. I remember when I was, um, you know... Uh, I was sleeping by a Kolel guy in, in, in Mir who found me. Uh, I didn't have a bed. Uh, and he found me uh, sleeping on the floor uh, in, in, in one of the dorm rooms during lunchtime and, and said, what, you, you, you're, you're in the yeshiva here a month and a half? You don't have a place to sleep? Come to my house. So I stayed at his house. And uh, I remember he had children's books. And he was constantly uh, changing what the text was because it didn't align with his values as a Frum Yeshiva fellow. <laughs> because, you know, and I remember, you know, it, 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 he had a hard time with it. And I was saying, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to throw these books out when your kids learn to read? And you're going to see, you know, these, these things happening. Uh, and, 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 and I remember that quandary with my own children and grandchildren, now that they are able to uh, take the books out and read on their own. Uh, do, do you see that as, um, you know, in a way, they are now going to make their own judgment right, as they're able to read those words and decide? Um, so the children's author has to be very careful in that way, because isn't there an imposition of that, of whatever message the, the, the author wants that's now going to uh, uh, impress itself on the child? Because the child is going to read the text. The child is going to read it. And, 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 and almost, as you know, 
that imaginatory, I don't know what you would call it, imaginative uh, aspect that anything can be anything is going to be, is, is, is being pushed away. Because as the child is getting older, all the messages they're getting from society is, read it correctly, get to the end, uh, tell me the nouns and verbs, and you know what was the beginning, middle, and end of that. So a lot of what you were talking about, about the incredible experience of bonding and exploring and individualizing the child's experience starts to wither away as the child gets older, correct? As he learns yeah. to read. Essentially forcing me back to our original appetizing conversation, which I thought we finished. And essentially, there is no way for one person or one system or one educator to think of all the options and put it out there. What we need over here is some freedom of expressions among educators, among authors. So to say, okay, so you will be exposed to this point of view from this parent or from this presentation or from this book or from this uncle, but there'll be 16 others coming in and that then forms the smorgasbord of your thinking, which is impossible if you have the kind of orientation which is kind of taking root today in democratic liberal society, which is that we know the truth and everything else should be denied or silenced because then you don't have a capacity. But don't expect to be the the universal donor, so to speak. You can't be that. And because no matter how well you do based on today's standards, you will do nothing based on tomorrow's standards. You'll be discredited. But at least if you have 15 of us going in different directions, you will say, okay, these guys were in the right direction. Their heart was in the right place. Uh, okay, they, so, so you're the saying... The kid on his own or her own. So, so what you could have is various books with various, uh, various uh, directions, various uh, perspectives, and the, and the kid will be able to read a lot of them. Uh, an, another possibility, though, and is, is, again, going back to Seuss and others, is that it's not clear what the ending means. In other words, it's not clear what exactly is, it, it, it isn't so straightforward. What happens is, is that it's, it's, it's in a world where, hmm, when I was, you know, again, I know you're not familiar with it, but one of the children's classics, Where the Wild Things Are, uh, by Maurice Sendak, which is about a child who uh, disobeys his parent and, and does things in a destructive manner is sent to their room and then the room turns into uh, a, an incredible jungle with, and he gets into a boat and an ocean and he travels to an incredible place that's full of animals, strangest type of creatures where he becomes the king of those animals um, and then gets involved in a wild rumpus and afterwards tires himself out and goes back to his his room and in his room he discovers although he was sent to his room he discovers that the supper is still there on the table uh, and that's the end of the story so you don't see the mother you don't see the mother telling him he was a good boy what you see is a wild explosiveness a reaction to that explosiveness an ability to sort of like seethe in that anger and seethe in what's that's going on and then to find their way back to a place that there is some sort of um, uh, compatibility. So that story, for many people who are listening who I know know the story, where the wild things are, it's somewhat open-ended. Um, 
and in a way, less is more. And I think children, that might be a way you don't necessarily need 20 books or 20 aspects, but do it in a way where you're not hammering the morality of what you're trying to get at. Um, and I, I, and that's why, I, I, again, I think that's, I know this is not your field, but I think that's what great art is as well. You know that once what's considered one of the greatest paintings of all time, you know what I'm going to say, of course, the Mona Lisa, right? Now, yeah. I don't, now, I'm sure, since I know you so well, that probably you don't know, and, and, and I share your, your frustration sometimes, this, what's the big deal? Why is the Mona Lisa this incredible painting that every single, uh, you know, professor and teacher and everyone will point to it as this wonder, uh, the Mona Lisa is the greatest painting. And, and I take a picture like that in 10 minutes. Yes, How's that? Right. So, so I'm sure... I'm but but I know, Dr. Junior, you've heard everyone extol the greatness of the Mona Lisa, and yet... Oh, I admire it. Don't worry about it. I've sat there and looked at it for a long time. Right. And, and, and what is it that people see in it is actually, what is she smiling about? Who is she? Is that contentment? Is that a mother? Is that, is that just happiness? If, 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 if her teeth were showing, it would be different. Part of what da Vinci captures is the 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 multifaceted possibilities within a human being's satisfaction, and um, and that's why they talk about Mona Lisa's smile as something more real than the headshots of let's say Hollywood starlets who are smiling at you. There's something there that lasts longer, and I think if 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 the children's literature can can capture that university that universality then I think you're talking about something that you can always go back to the well and it, it, it can actually soothe the person and comfort them. I don't know. I know I'm going into a world that you're not that comfortable with yourself, but I think that's what artists, I think that's why you can watch the same movie over and over again uh, sometimes. That's what great art does. Um, it, 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 you can come to it at so many stages in your life and, and, and there's another a suggestion that bursts with inside of you. Anyway, just wanted to put that out there in terms of of, of how art works and uh, shaping and helping a person through. Well, it's important that you're contextualizing people like Dr. Seuss as artists, which they are, which they are. I don't know if you want to call them authors because authors often are very much interested in giving a message Whereas artists are interested, at least ideally, in opening up the consumer's mind to explore their own. So sure, sure. I see these as projective psychologists, essentially. And and just to wrap a bow on this, and I'm sorry for trying to do that. I think the woke culture uh, that you bemoaned, it hasn't yet come for me. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if I become more uh, popular as a podcaster, I'm going to be open and the things that we have on our platform will be open to the type of criticism that, that, that others uh, have suffered. But what I would say is, is that um, what, we're, what, we're, what, we're, what we're trying to do. Yeah. So really... If, if, if the woke culture that you bemoaned can perhaps realize that that what we instead of this is the way things have to look, there's something out there to just speculate about. 
Um, there's there, there's art. There's a tool, not necessarily a a, a finished idea of how to think. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I I know when I was thinking about uh, this topic, if I was an African American child or a, a, an Ar- a child from the Arab countries, and I saw an image in a book that didn't look like me or that was, you know, uh, overemphasized. Um, uh, I know that there's in one of the, uh, in one of Seuss's books, uh, they have, um, whether it's I ran the zoo, I think some of the characters uh, have slanty eyes and they, and they have names that are hard to pronounce. He uses that type of language. When I am c- confronted by that, um, and I see that as, as, as someone like that, um, uh, that hurt is, it could be real. I, I don't know, but, but I know that we, both of us have seen caricatures of Jews, right? Caricatures of, of, uh, of, of hook-nosed, uh, terrible-looking Jews. Uh, is, is there maybe perhaps a, a benefit to say to a child, um, this is what people thought about us and, and, and try to explain that? Again, and it's this what the woke, what the woke culture and what people want is sanitizing that take those elements away that the kids shouldn't see it. But let's just talk specifically and end this here with this. You know, again, imagine you're a child and an African American child, and the image that that you're seeing in the book is something with exaggerated features, uh, lips and nose, you know, to the point that they seem to be grotesque. Um, you tell me is how should a parent deal with that or how what do you tell to the child when the child says is that me why is that child right what is the answer is there any good answer i'm happy to talk about it but it'll take us elsewhere so we'll do just a little and maybe leave it for another time okay we talk about ecology of the phenomenon of microaggressions okay that's a field that psychology has not recognized sociology has not recognized it for more than 10 or 12 years as it is, okay? Um, The idea of microaggressions is obviously that there are subtle ways of stereopity or criticizing people or racism or sexism or whatever it is, but it's done through micro and now with subtle aggressions, which usually the aggressor is not really aware of. I think it's commendable that we recognize that. The problem is that in terms of the victim, um, at least in the initial stages of coming to grips with this whole with this whole phenomenon of microaggressions, it puts you in a paranoid position. In other words, whereas I was able to go through a lot of my career by simply ignoring, deflecting, devaluing a lot of the uh, anti-Semitism that was there, either blatantly or subtly, let's say micro uh, anti-Semitism. You end up being someone whose entire perspective is on hounding out those people who are after you, and you can't breathe. I've seen people that their entire um, thinking is based on uh, sexism, uh, homophobia, etc., and that's all they're doing. They've put themselves in the victim seat rather than saying that no matter what you do, there will always be things coming at you, not justifiably. But they're all there in terms of, okay, what can I do besides dwell on this? I'll tell you, the most resistant patient 
to any kind of remediation in psychiatry is when the patient focuses solely on misjustices that have been perpetrated on them and they do nothing else. They have no room in their heart, in their soul for relationships, for ideas, for um, exploring um, different uh, sciences even because all they'll think about is, oh, look what they've done to me. And essentially, society is going through a phase like that right now with these focuses, uh, these foci on little aspects of, yes, they're there, but there is more going on. There is actually an opera you can go to and enjoy besides this. And for some people, this has become all-consuming to the point that they can't see anything else going on. And yes, so long as we're dealing with historical works, there are many works that have ideas that are repugnant to them that are smuggled in into an overall not smuggled in, that are just present in a fabric that has a lot to say okay, Heidegger was a phenomenal philosopher despite the fact that he also thought that the Third Reich is the essence of truth okay, I understand there's something wrong over there, especially to me as a Jew, but he had a lot of things to say, so yes Am I going to say he didn't exist? Okay, so now we're back to that soapbox. And I think we did that. Yes, I I, I agree. So let's just say that you are Sam. Sam, you are. And I'm happy in that uh, context to be able to say, yes, I will have you in a box, out of the box. I will have you no matter whether you're wearing socks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sam, okay. Sam, you are, and I was happy they were able to uh, have this parlay. Take care, everybody. I am. <laughs> Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 